Father, I, I feel um, unworthy and like a, uh, a very weak vessel to carry all this truth about your Jesus Christ. And Lord, um, I just would pray that you would work through your word, that you would work through um, the what we pick up from his life from here and there this morning around the scriptures. And I just would ask that you would use it to your glory. As we as we look at the scriptures together, uh, Father, you you are amazing and glorious, and to send a member of the Trinity to walk among us and to be our Savior, and to think that you had planned this since eternity past uh, for our sake and for your glory is is um, just beyond what we can imagine. And so we thank you for telling us about it. We thank you for describing it in so many ways. And, and um, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that's able to hit it home. And I just would pray that that's what you would do this morning. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to start this morning, oddly, talking about a murder trial. This from 1910. Actually, the trial was in... 1911 was due to a crime that took place on September 19, 1910. And this crime involved a man named Clarence Hiller. He and his wife and his four children were fast asleep in Chicago. Mrs. Hiller had awoken and noticed that a, a, a light, a gas light that they normally left on at night had, had been snuffed out. So she alerted Mr. Hiller to this fact and he went to investigate the situation. At the head of the stairway, he encountered an intruder, and they began to struggle. Struggle. Sadly, um, after both of them falling to the foot of the stairway, Mr. Hiller was shot twice and died. Mrs. Hiller screamed as the intruder fled the house. In a little bit, um, as the police were investigating the crime, they decided of entry into the home was a window in the kitchen. While the investigation was going on, police was started noticed and started to question um, a man named Thomas Jennings because he was found wandering the town that night, sort of aimlessly. When they found Over in his possession, happened to be missing two bullets, they took him in for questioning. The detectives developed a strong murder case against Mr. Jennings because of one detail at the crime scene. That was that a railing near the window that had been used to enter the home had been recently painted. And it was there that the imprint of four fingers were found embedded in the paint that was still tacky. The prints matched Thomas Jennings and were instrumental in his being sentenced to hang. He was the first person ever convicted on the result of fingerprint evidence because of the prints that he left in tacky paint on the railing below the window of the home. Now, a fingerprint shows several things. One, unique to an individual person. It also, it proves, it can prove their presence at a specific place at a specific time. And as well, it leaves a mark on what it's touched. And we'll kind of expand on these things in a bit here. As, as we plan to move through the Gospel of John in two weeks, I thought it would be great to get first an overview of this person of Jesus Christ. And obviously, as I began to prepare for this, I began to also realize just what an endeavor this is, how big this is, how do you, how do you compact the person of Jesus Christ into a sermon. And, and the obvious answer is that you can't. It's funny because as, I, as I've been studying and looking through the Gospel of John and planning for our time in it, um, 
I've been grieved that it doesn't include so many of the other stories of Jesus that, that I would so would love to preach on. Obviously, everything that's in there I look forward to preach as well, but I came to realize and become grateful again for the perspective and focus that John takes in looking at the deity of Jesus and, and was reminded again that the person of Jesus, even just in the, the parts of his life that were given in the Scriptures, just in mainly those three years of ministry, that it required him be, his life being examined, those three years being examined, from four different people, from four different ex, uh, perspectives, in order to give us a fuller picture of just who he is. That being the four Gospels, of course, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that even with that, we're not given all of who he is. We're not given all of who he is just in those, in those three years. We've probably seen uh, in pictures or in movies designs cut into, into crops. You know, they call them uh, crop symbols, I think. And people believe these are the imprint of alien visits and, and uh, most believe there's some sort of kind of hoax. Or maybe you've seen the movie Thor, you know, that came out a few years ago. And each time that that, I don't remember what it's called, the, the bridge would hit Earth and, and, and it would carry someone from Thor's world into to the Earth's world. What would happen every time that that bridge, you know, would, would touch Earth? It would imprint this this alien design into the earth and, and you'd know that, that it had touched there. That's that's what had happened. This morning I hope to just zoom in on the idea that God touched his creation through the person of Jesus. And I hope to look with you at the fingerprint that he left on our world with his visit. And if, as we look back on Jesus' life, I hope that, that we can understand that it's as if he, the impact that he left, we can see that as being the fingerprint of God on our world, on all of our history, on every person that walks the earth that his life here was intended to resonate for all of time. He is the evidence that God has touched our world. So like investigators, we're going to be looking this morning at the person and work of Jesus. Or more so, maybe like I'm the, I'm the prosecutor or, or the defense attorney and you're the jury. And I hope to, to help you to see that the, the impact that Jesus had made, the person that Jesus is, and the time that he spent on his earth is evidence that God has touched our world in such a significant way that it's never to be the same, and that every person on this earth are held to account for the time that Jesus spent here. And the work that he did is enough to impact in a salvation way or to hold accountable every person that has ever walked this earth. He's the fingerprint of God. I mentioned that the fingerprint is unique to each individual person. Even twins have a different fingerprint from each other. They were, fingerprints were even used as far back as in ancient Egypt as a unique seal of the Pharaoh or of other noble people. So proof number one that Jesus is God's fingerprint is that Jesus is unique. And he's unique to God. First of all, he claimed to be the Messiah. And as you can see from our notes there, there's like lots of points and subpoints and stuff like that. So we're going to move quickly through this. First, he claimed to be our, the Messiah. He was clear with the religious leader of the Jews about who he was. He said in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If you want to know how significant this statement was to the Jewish leaders of that day, you can tell by the fact that they all picked up stones in order to stone Jesus at this point for what they considered to be blasphemy. Anybody that claims that Jesus never, anybody that says that Jesus never claimed to be God is just uninformed. When being questioned at his trial by the Jewish leaders, they asked him point blank, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And he responded, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In comforting Martha in John 11 over the loss of her brother Lazarus, it says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. In the upper room on the night of his arrest, we read in John 14, Jesus made many statements about who he is. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He then says later, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. When being questioned by the Roman governor Pilate, about his being king of the Jews, he responded in John 18, For this purpose I was born, and for this person I have purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Whoever is of the truth, everyone who is of the truth, rather, listens to my voice. Josh McDowell is known for his statement about Christ. That with all that Jesus claims about himself, he is either a liar, or he is a lunatic, or he is telling the truth, and that makes him Lord. Either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Well, his followers also professed that he was the Messiah. We see in John 1, Nathaniel saying, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Peter says in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Martha in John 11 says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. Even his enemies considered him to be special. Pilate couldn't find anything to hold against him. He tells the Jewish leaders in John 19, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Even his betrayer, Judas Iscariot, recognizes his sinlessness in Matthew 27, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. The Roman centurion who supervised Jesus' execution recognized him making this statement after his death in Matthew 27. Truly, this was the Son of God. History describes him as being unique. Josephus, a Jewish historian born around 38 AD, just born a few years after Jesus' death and resurrection, writes this, About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. Now notice, Josephus is a Jew, and it's not necessarily believed that he ever believed in Christ as his Savior. This is a secular historian writing this. And it says, For he was one who wrought surprising feats, and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many Greeks. He was the Christ. As Walter Wink put it once, if Jesus had never lived, we would not have been able to invent him. That's how unique Jesus was. And, and we're just looking at his claims at this point the claims that he made, the statements that others made about him. 
written down in the historical literature that we have, both in the scriptures and in external historical evidences as well. Think about this. What does your life say about Jesus? Does it say that he is Lord and worthy of glory and honor from your every thought and deed? Or does it treat him like a lucky rabbit's foot? Like, you know, this is somebody that I better respect or else God's not going to be happy with me. How much thought and time do we put into knowing and obeying him? It says a lot about what we think about him. You know, as I said, a fingerprint can prove that someone was present at a certain place and at a certain time. So in the case of the murderer Thomas Jennings, the print was left on the paint that was still tacky. Jesus' Jesus life of significance can be placed at a definite point in history. But it's, it's a lot more to say uh, that moment was when God touched our world in a special way. More than just he was here, it's a lot more to say that, that the, the imprint that he made in the way he came and in the way he went is evidence of the fact that this was a touch of, of God himself on this earth. And our second proof here that Jesus is God's fingerprint is, is the significant life that he lived. We can certainly take all day to describe just the miracles that were recorded in the Gospels. John even wrote this in his Gospel as he closes out. In John 21, 25, he says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This morning we're going to focus on the miraculous bookends of Jesus' life, his birth and his death. His life had a significant beginning. Mary, a virgin, was informed that she would be carrying the Son of God. And in Luke 1 we read, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, as Gabriel speaks to Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born, to be born, will be called the Son of God. Joseph had to be encouraged to go through with his plans to wed Mary. We read in Matthew 1 uh, where Joseph is told, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary. There we go. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He will save his people from their sins. I think it says something of the significance of Jesus' birth that his parents had to be reassured so much by God saying, I'm in this. I'm behind this. The virgin birth was miraculous, certainly. And it's enough for people to find it hard to swallow. But it's, a, but it's the fact that it's the fulfillment of prophecy which really brings it home. More than 700 years earlier, Isaiah wrote, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. I don't think that we grasp the significance of fulfilled prophecy, though. Uh, take eight prophecies, and maybe some of you have heard this before. Take just eight prophecies. First, the virgin birth, that he'd be a descendant of Abraham, a descendant through the tribe of Judah, an heir to the throne of David. His birth would be in Bethlehem. When the time of his birth would be, that he would, uh, his birth would lead to the slaughter of children. After it, uh, the prophecy of his family's flight to Egypt. You know, two men sought to grasp the significance 
of fulfilled prophecy. Their names were Peter W. Stoner and Robert C. Newman. Their book is called Science Speaks. The book was based on the science of probability, and it was peer-reviewed by the American Scientific Affiliation. Science Speaks, the book by these two men, determined the odds of any one man in all of history fulfilling eight prophecies as Jesus did. The probability is this. It's one in 100-something. If there's a gazillion, that's probably what it is. That's one to the 17th power, if you will. 17 zeros after this one. And maybe some of you have heard this description of what that likelihood is. But let me describe it this way. I love the box of chocolates, like the pot of gold chocolates, right? And I, But I should say I love most of them. Um, there is, uh, I love the caramel ones, you know, the peanut ones, um, things like that, but every now and then I'll get one that tastes like they took all of the frosting in a Pillsbury can of frosting and condensed it down into a little cube and covered it with chocolate, right? Um, it's like some sort of, like, sugary... Uh, just condensed sugar, white sugar inside this chocolate piece. Okay? So I like the caramels. I don't like this sugar block. Okay? So if you took the state of Texas and filled it with these pot of gold sugar cubes with covered with chocolate, and you did this knee deep, if you filled the state of Texas with those, and then decided to take one of those precious chocolate-covered caramels that looks exactly like them and tossed it into the state of Texas, knee filled with these other chocolates, okay, and you stirred it all around, and then you put me on a plane and flew it over Texas, and at some random point decided to parachute me out of that plane into one spot in all of the state of Texas. And in that one spot, in, a, in anywhere I could reach, I dove my hand down into that knee-deep stack of chocolates covering the state of Texas. And in the first try, picked up one piece of chocolate and put it in my mouth. And it was the caramel one. That is the chances of one person fulfilling eight of the prophecies, as Jesus did. That's what was determined by this book, Science Speaks, that was looking at eight prophecies being fulfilled by the science of probability. But the fact is this. Jesus didn't only fulfill eight prophecies. In fact, he fulfilled 60 major prophecies. And he fulfilled at least 270 prophetic ramifications of what he did. And this is the probability of a person fulfilling just eight of them as he did. Not only is his life significant in its beginning, his life had, had a significant end, of course. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians Three. He writes, sorry, I'm trying to find a good We have another headset on order here. Paul writes, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, being Peter, and to the twelve. It says, Then he appeared to hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Apostles, Paul, he appeared also to me.
were, Je- were hearing about Jesus' resurrection. And they could go and look up some of these people, especially some of these 500 people that he appeared to all at one time. You know, other people have been resuscitated. Jesus was resurrected. Yes, God had touched our world with his redeeming hand. And the path of salvation from death has been opened that we might eventually put on Christ immortality. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is poor, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And how should we be affected by who Jesus is and what he has done? There's something I can do better here. There we go. How should we be affected by what he's done? Paul continues and answers that question. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. The credentials of Christ are his miracles, his fulfillment of prophecy, and his resurrection. Any one of these categories should lead us to be steadfast and immovable. Any of them should cause us to be abounding in his work, knowing that our ministry will not go to waste. I guess it just boils down to whether we truly believe it. But plain and simple, as Jesus said, anyone who does not believe that he is the Messiah sent from God as the Savior of the world, Jesus himself said, that person is calling the Father, is calling God a liar. That's a significant thing. The most first and foremost way that we should trust in Christ's death and resurrection is by trusting him. Thank you. Recall also that a fingerprint leaves a mark on what is touched. Even when there's no wet paint for there to mark a mark to be in, the fingerprint is going to leave a mark. Maybe um, you've seen on on television or things like that where, as a part of the investigation, they dust for print, right? Jesus' life certainly left a mark on everything that he touched. The third proof here that Jesus is God's fingerprint, that he is evidence that God touched our world in a special way, is that he left his mark. Now, I was talking recently with a couple of guys about a certain internet video that had been, uh, had gone viral, if you will, because it showed this huge eagle swooping down in the middle of this, this park and picking up a baby. And, and you're, you're glad to see that it only gets about four feet off the ground before it drops the baby. And, you know, you kind of watch in amazement. Well, the video turned out to be a total hoax. And it seems like in a lot of ways, a lot of sectors of the Internet, it becomes kind of this how many... Who can create a video that dupes the most people, you know, before they realize that it's carefully edited? We went on to discuss the myriad of viewpoints that there are on the Internet. For instance, there's some that argue that the lunar landings or the Boston bombings were staged. And so they'll, they'll create entire videos showing different angles and showing, showing different snapshots and things. 
Some will, they'll show what seems like conclusive evidence for their view. And you have to stop back and say, can I even trust this person that I don't even know them from Adam, but they, they've made this video? It seems like the internet has made it so that seeing is no longer believing. This prompted one of the guys, in, as we were discussing this, to, to stop and say, you know, you can see why it is that Jesus didn't come during our time. I mean, how much discussion would there be going around? I've seen the video. I think it's, you know, where he healed that person. I think it's staged. But he made a mark on history. Going back to Josephus here. says, he won over many Jews and many Greeks. When Pilate, upon hearing him, accused by men of highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day, he appeared to them restored to life. For the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of Christians, so called after him, has still to the day, to the day, not disappeared. So even if we didn't have the gospel account, Jesus' mark on history, just from a secular historian and other secular historians that wrote during that day, would have told us that Jesus was a Jewish teacher, that many people witnessed him perform miracles and exorcisms, that some people believed that he was the Messiah, that the Jewish leaders rejected him, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius, that his followers believed he was still alive and spread beyond Palestine so that there were tens of thousands of them across the civilized world just 30 years after Jesus' death, that all kinds of people from both cities and countrysides Worship him as God. Even if we didn't have the gospel accounts, secular history would tell us these things. In fact, his mark on history was so significant that it changed history forever. That we know history as being B.C. and A.D. B.C. being before Christ and A.D. being Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. You could say that all of history, because of Jesus, is really looked at now as being his story. He left his mark of mission. Now follow the plan with me here. God created his world for his glory. He allowed us to exercise our will that comes with being made in his image. And we, the pinnacle of his creation, turned away from him. From that point forward, God sets out a redemption plan that takes at least 6,000 years to accomplish. At this time, he shapes his stubborn people Israel to where he finally he's finally appreciated, right? No. His plan can only be accomplished by Jesus, a member of the triune God, coming to earth and he sacrifices himself by way of the most shameful means of execution available. It's completed by his resurrection and spending another 40 days teaching his disciples what this means. What about his team? If I were him, I would have used my conversation with Pilate to win him over to my thoughts. I would have made a special visit to the rich young ruler to get him to underwrite the Judean outreach plan. Herod would have made a great, famous person with a testimony going from debauchery to disciple. Of course, he doesn't do any of this. Instead, he takes a few ragtag fishermen, most of them teenagers, even though he told them ahead of time everything that would take place, they're hiding out after his death. And they don't believe his friends, even, who said they've seen him with their own eyes, 
They've seen Jesus alive. This group couldn't even stay on task between resurrection appearances. Well, at least he establishes a rock-solid succession plan, right? I mean, with all that's invested, don't you think that he would set up some sort of angelic board of trustees? For all he went through, don't you think that he'd make his followers sign a revocable salvation contract? Because of the insult and danger that they represent, surely he would eradicate the world's false religions. Or after having been rejected by the Jewish people, he would at least do something that would cause them to come to an immediate national recognition of him as their Messiah. No, he doesn't do any of this. Of course, he chooses to leave his followers with a few commands and his Holy Spirit. As we read in Matthew 28, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Of course, we know that the fact of his being with his followers, his followers makes all the difference. The truth is, it says a lot that we are sitting here 2,000 years later. And millions of other people are doing the same thing this morning. Worshiping God in Christ. You know, a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin named Gamaliel said this about Jesus' followers in Acts 5. He says, as he's addressing the rest of the Sanhedrin, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. What do you think? Here we are 2,000 years later. The church is a God thing. It wasn't set up any of the ways that we would have done this. But the very fact that he works through us, his broken vessel, is evidence that he was the one that that worked. Well, lastly, we see his mark on individuals' lives. We see right from the beginning of the church that his disciples took on a totally different mentality. Peter, who denied him on the night of his crucifixion, who cowered in a room after his death, who took Jesus' disciples back to a life of fishing after seeing him resurrected. This Peter was totally changed by the Holy Spirit whom Jesus promised was given to Jesus' followers. Before thousands of Jews who were gathered for Pentecost, Peter preached in Acts 2.36, Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's saying this to the people that just weeks earlier were screaming, Crucify him, crucify him. I'm sorry, not weeks, just days away. In Acts 4, Peter and John heal a crippled man at the entrance to the temple by the power of God. Soon they and other disciples are teaching in the temple about salvation through Jesus. And this is kind of a long exchange here, but, but, but follow its significance. It says, and they were speaking to the, to the people. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. We'll get through that included. It says, with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, these are the two men that led the push to, to try and crucify Jesus. Just days earlier. 
and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Speaking of the man that they healed. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we were being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the building, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter and the disciples were obviously changed by their ongoing relationship with the risen Lord. By this, but this didn't mean rock star status for them. On another occasion of their being arrested for preaching about Jesus, the disciples were beaten and released. And we read in Acts 5, 41 through 42, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. He left a mark on the lives of the individual that he touched. Even in the face of persecution, they didn't shrink back from proclaiming the one that they loved more than life. And it was the same when it came to the end of their lives as well. Let's look just at Jesus' followers who wrote the four Gospels. Matthew suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia, killed by the sword. Mark was dragged by horses through the streets until he was dead in Alexandria, Egypt. Luke was hanged in Greece as a result of his continual preaching of Christ to the law. John was boiled in a huge basin of oil and survived miraculously, but then was sentenced to the mines on a prison island of Patmos. You know, there's a saying in gambling that I don't know a lot about. But, you know, whether it's maybe the roulette where deciding where that ball is going to land or... or um, uh, a deal of blackjack or something like that. When a person says, I'm all in, meaning I'm going to put all my chips, everything that I have, I'm going to put it on this bet. My chips are all there. That's what and how Jesus impacted the people that followed him. All of their chips were on this man. Even to the point that as Peter was crucified for his proclaiming Christ, and he asked that he would not be crucified upright, but upside down, because of the fact that he didn't consider himself worthy to die in the way that his Lord died. That he was looking expectantly to the fact that he was going to be with Jesus. Because you know why? All his chips were on this man. Are all your chips on Christ? If the gospel were not true, would your life be a waste? Or are you hedging your bet? Try not to get too radical with this serving the Lord with your life thing. I'd say the biggest problem in the American church is not that we can't serve the Lord with our lives. It's just that we won't serve him with our lives. Maybe because we just don't think he's worth it. My hope is that this morning you've seen a little bit more of the significance of the person of Christ. He's the most unique, the most significant, and the most impacting person that's ever walked this earth. He's the very evidence that God has touched our world in a saving, 
in a significant, in a loving, in a giving, in a way that he never will touch it again. And that work of Christ is what all people of all time are held accountable to. We're going to celebrate communion this morning, and I invite the server to come on in with our communion this morning. And as we celebrate communion, we are celebrating the person of Christ. We're celebrating him and remembering him as he commanded and desires for us to remember him. Broken for us. Blood poured out for us. That is how God humbly chose to show his love and his holiness, his righteousness, his, his eternal plan to us. And that's how he's asked us to remember, broken and bleeding. Now here at, at Harvest, we, we practice open communion, meaning that anyone is welcome to take communion, but we adjure you that if you don't have a relationship with God through Christ, if you've never received him as your Savior, just let it pass. Um, because it's, it's a significant thing. And it should be done in a way that's reflective on a relationship with him that you have for certain. But if the elements are being passed out, just reflect on the gift and the sacrifice of Christ in communion.
Jesus took bread and tore it, and it was a symbol that he chose. It was a moment that he chose. It was, as scripture tells us, he laid his life down willingly. And he chose the symbol of tearing bread to represent the tearing of his body. And he asked us to remember that that's what he did. Let's see that now as we take bread. And he took the cup and he said that this cup is the blood of the new covenant or the cup of the new covenant in his blood, meaning that it was God's agreement with us that Jesus' sacrifice would cover over the gap of our sin between him and us. And it's what he showed in his person, Christ, to bridge that by his son for us. And it's the agreement that he decided to make with us. And he asked that as often as we drink of this together, that we do that remembering that he made that agreement with us. Let's do that. I'm going to close in prayer, prayer and then we're going to sing a few songs of praise. And you know, there's, a, there's a reason why we do this at the end of the service. And that's because we want to be able to take what we have learned and received and we want to respond to it in the way that we should. And that's in worship.